Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Amen. As we continue to worship this morning, let me invite you, let's take the Word of God open, the Word of God, and turn in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 8. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews faithfully this year, and we're excited about coming to Hebrews chapter 8 today as we see the better covenant of Christ. If you're here last week, Hebrews 7, if you remember, it teaches us that not only is Jesus our perfect high priest, our perfect great high priest, but, but Jesus is our permanent great high priest, that, that we don't have a priest on earth, we have a priest who is in heaven. Christ completed the once and for all sacrifice for our sin, that you and I were separated from God in sin, and Christ came as the substitute. He came as a sacrifice, and he died instead of us. He died for us because he offered himself. He was the willing sacrifice who died in our place. In his blood, it says at the end of Hebrews chapter 7, his blood saves us to the uttermost, meaning it lacks nothing. That Christ is able to save and he's sufficient to save and he's not able to not just save you from everything, he's able to save you to the uttermost from all things. And now we understand in Hebrews that he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's important not only because the work is complete, but because we also have an advocate. We have one who intercedes for us, one who stands in our place. You go and read in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, the prayer that Jesus prays for those who belong to him. Ever since Christ ascended to the Father, he has been interceding for us that we might have salvation, that we might process through sanctification, and that we might experience security in glory. What a beautiful image that we have that Christ is there representing us, amen, that he declares us not guilty, that he stands in our place, that when God the Father looks at us, he sees ourselves covered in the blood of Jesus. He is actively interceding on our behalf. And now he's praying here, and when we come to Hebrews 8, we see this covenant that has to come to us that we might be changed, not externally, but be changed internally from the inside out. So let's stand, if you will, with me for the reading of God's word today. We're going to see it says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now again, what an image that we have that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and you're thinking, what is the significance? Why, why the right hand of the Father? Why not the left? Well, you have to remember in the high court of the Jewish temple, in the Jewish high priesthood, in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, they would have this court. And on the court of the panel of all the priests, of all the people who would represented for judgment, there would be two people on each side of the court. And they would sit there, and one would be on the left, and he would declare the person, when they came to trial, guilty. The person on the right would sit there, and he would de- declare the person, as they declared and find judgment, he was innocent. And so we have Christ seated at the right hand of the judgment, right hand of the throne of God. And what does he declare over us in Christ? Not guilty. He sits at the right hand. And that's important for us to recognize. And he sits there interceding for us for every high priest in verse 3. is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he, Christ, were on earth, he would be no priest at all, not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. They serve as what? A copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that being where the temporary place that God dwelled, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to what? The pattern, right? Just the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. This is the word of God. We're going to process the rest of chapter 8, but let's stop, surrender, and submit ourselves to the authority of God over us. Father, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and sit under it. And God, I pray right now that the word of God will come alive in us. That, Father, what we do not know, you teach. What we do not have, God, you give. And God, who we are not, God, make us into your image for your glory. God, speak for your servants. We are listening. In Jesus' name that we pray. And God's church says, amen. As you find your seat, again, you can use your Hebrew scripture journal. You can find the backside of your worship guide. We're going to walk together through the word. And I want chapter 8, it's a, it's a short chapter in the essence of Hebrews, but it's a very thick chapter in the whole entire book. And we're going to walk through the rest of the text. We've covered a little bit of territory, but I want to see the rest of our time, two things that should stand out to us in the Word of God about who Christ is, what this covenant represents, because well, you hear the word covenant, you hear the word priest, or there's a lot of, lot of Old Testament language here. Well, what is exactly being communicated to us? And I want you to see, first of all, number one, Christ he brings a covenant of fulfillment. All right, he brings a covenant of fulfillment. Now, what do you mean by that? Let's jump right back into the word in verse 6. He says, But as it is, Christ, he has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Christ, we've been saying over and over, Christ is better. That's been the theme of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. Nothing better than Jesus. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, it's a very simple observation. Very simple observation. If the old covenant actually worked, then God would have never announced a new covenant, right? The old covenant, that being the old covenant of sacrifice, the old covenant God made with, with Abraham, the old covenant God made with Moses, the covenant he made with the people of Israel. If that system of sacrifice, bulls, right, and cows and, and all kinds of sacrifice, their blood actually atoned for sin. If it actually worked, then God wouldn't have announced, hey, there's a new covenant. So you have to remember how many sins were actually truly fully forgiven in the old system. None. They were insufficient. They would forgive for a time, but Christ is the only sacrifice that can forgive to the uttermost, that it would be finished, that it would be final, that it would be complete. And so we love to say what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? That's a, one of our famous and favorite phrases to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't, don't try to fix something that has no problems. But the very fact that God makes a new covenant tells you what? That there was something insufficient about the old, something incomplete about the old one. In other words, the old covenant says was faulty because it was not final. The old covenant, it was faulty because it was not final. It failed to provide a final sacrifice. It failed to forgive sin for all time. And that endless repetition of priest after priest, sacrifice after sacrifice, it proved that it was an insufficient system. That we're just going to continue to go through this, the same old, same old, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Sacrifice after sacrifice, it demonstrates it is ineffective and has the inability to fully and finally deal with sin. And that's why when Jesus declares from the cross, 
Three powerful words. It is finished. When he declared that, sin paid for once and for all. Sin paid for in full. And we see from the cross that Jesus announced that the wrath of God was finally finished. It was finally paid for. And never again would there be another priest. We have a priest, and his name is Jesus, and never again would there be another sacrifice. We don't come and offer sacrifices. We come and offer ourselves because Jesus, he paid it all, and Jesus what? He paid it in full. So we see that Christ, he brings a covenant of fulfillment. Number two, what do we see here? That Christ brings a covenant of forgiveness. He brings a covenant of forgiveness. Now, we're going to go through some deep territory here about the Old Testament, but I want us to start in verse 8. Read through and walk back. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, this coming straight from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. We're seeing this new language, this new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, and, and, had, and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So you remember that they were delivered from slavery in Egypt into the promised land through what? The Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses, the Ten Commandments. For they did not continue my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What's he going to do differently? I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. In other words, I have the Holy Spirit in this new covenant. I don't need the teaching. I mean, I need it from the Word of God in First John, but I'm not required. I'm underneath the Holy Spirit. He is going to reveal to me the Word of God. And we have it right here. For the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more sins no more and speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete now we're going to talk about what that means because it sounds like well all right that's that's over and done with now we're fresh and we're new no but it's going to be a fulfillment thing and so what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away all right let's walk through the law here a covenant a covenant is a promise It's God's promise. God made a covenant with his people. It was a promise. And now this new covenant is God's promise to forgive the sins of those who trust in Christ. We can just boil it down. The new covenant is God's promise to forgive the sin of those who trust in Christ. That's what this new covenant is. God promises to forgive our sins. God promises to give us eternal life if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and trust in him as the sacrifice for our sins. It's all dependent on faith. It is all driven by faith. And we have to understand that it is only accomplished through the blood and through the death of Christ on the cross. That's the only way that you and I can come by faith is to the Father through Christ the Son. God could have desired to forgive our sin. He could have wanted to. He could have longed to. But without the cross, there would have been no way. There had to be a penalty. There had to be a payment. And it had to be the right kind of payment. It had to be the perfect kind of payment. And the only one who could ever satisfy the wrath of God in completion and fulfillment and fullness was Christ. Nothing else would work. So sin had to be punished. And so a real understanding, a real simple understanding of the gospel is that you and I have been separated from God because of our sin. 
Not all of us in our sin, without a renewal, without a rebirth, without a regeneration, without being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I are in opposition to God. We're separated from God. And so God sends the one, God sends his son, and he died and was punished for our sin in our place. And now because of Christ, God is free to forgive the sinner who repents and receives Christ. So I want to challenge you this morning, if you're here and you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, you can be fully and freely and finally forgiven through, through your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. You can. It's all through him. It is not through you. It is not through what you have done. It is truly through Christ. And if you're sitting there with guilt, and you're sitting there with shame, and you're sitting there with thinking there's no possible way that God could ever save someone like me, or I've got to get a lot of things right first. Let me, let me perform a few different things. And once I get a few things in order, then I'll finally be able to receive this free gift because I'm not a candidate now, but I can get there. If that's how you're operating, that's how you're thinking you're missing the free gift that is given to you in Jesus. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It is by faith that you can be fully, freely, forever forgiven in Jesus' name. But to understand his grace, you need to be aware of your guilt Right? To understand his grace, you need to be fully aware of your guilt. What do you mean? Well, verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Why? For they did not continue in my covenant. They were disobedient. They walked in sin, and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. Salvation, it is absolutely about being saved to someone. But it is also about being saved from something. Right? You have to understand this, this, this tension that we have of grace and truth. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are saved from our deserved place in hell, separated from God for all eternity. We are saved from his condemnation, our guilt. We are saved because we have sinned against the holy God. I have chosen in my own sin to rebel, resist, and reject God. That is my responsibility. I am accountable to answer for how I deal with God because I have chosen other things that were not God. And every single one of us, we stand personally guilty, personally accountable. It's not God just sweeps it on the rug. It has to be paid for, and it has to be received by faith through you. And so you sit here and you think, but I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. The law is obsolete. We just read that. I'm not under the law. I'm not under grace. And yes, the old covenant has passed away, and it says in the word of God it is obsolete, but the problem is that you and I still can't perform or behave our way into God's favor. There's nothing that I can do to make God happy with me. There's no way that I can perform and preach my heart out and say, God, are you satisfied? Look what I've done for you. Right? There's no way in my flesh, apart from Christ, that I could ever, ever earn or gain any kind of favor or righteousness with God. The problem is that I just can't perform my way into righteousness. Ephesians 2 says that, that we are saved by never something that we do, not by works that we may boast, but we are saved by faith in what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done to us, and what Jesus has done in us. It is all a work of Christ. So I want to challenge you, even on your best day, 
Romans chapter 3 says that your best deeds are filthy rags. You don't amount to much. You don't amount to anything. And it's not about us. Or it's not about here. Let me say this phrase again. It's not about us getting into righteousness. It's all about his righteousness getting into us. It's not about us getting into righteousness. It's about his righteousness getting into us. And that's why verse 10 is so profound. In verse 3 through 12, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws. Here we're seeing this word law again. I'm going to put it in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, their sin. I will remember their sin no more. What are we talking about with covenant? What are we talking about with law? We've got a lot of Old Testament understanding here. And I want us to walk through this covenant. All right, let's walk through this process. Let's go back to the very, very beginning in Genesis. Before the fall, before sin, in the perfect garden of, of Eden, Adam lived there with God. All right, remember that God made all things and God said it was good. God made man and it was really good. God made man and Adam lived free from sin. All right, Adam was created in the image of God and Adam was a pure reflection of the law of God. Right? In the garden, there was no written law. In the garden, Adam didn't have a book. In the garden, there were no Ten Commandments. Why? Because it was the most natural thing for Adam to do was to live in the image of God. The most natural thing in that environment, the perfect garden that represents the perfection of God, we understand that Adam had no sin in his life at that point. He, he was living according to the will of God, and he didn't need a law. He didn't need a command. He had it written where? On his heart. All right? He was the image of God. And so the most natural thing to do was to imitate God, but Adam had the capability to sin, and that capability became a reality. Man fell from God. Man fell into sin, and then man, as a result of their sin, they were removed from the garden, which represented separation. So when you and I sin, we step out of the perfect will, the perfect word, the perfect way of God, and we step out, and now we're separated. That's sin. That's what sin has done. And so that's the very first thing that we see with man and with sin. And now the law of God was written, what we see there in that text, written in an understanding, it would have been written on Adam's heart. Now the law of God is still written on the heart of every man, according to Romans 2. Or in Romans 2, the law, understanding of who God is, what God desires, we all have that. But the truth of God, according to Romans 1, is that we've all suppressed it. That we don't desire God. That our sin has covered it up. Our sin has pushed it down. Our sin has resisted, rejected, and rebelled against God. That we have no desire. We're still all without excuse. But we have no desire to know God because of our sin. Because after the fall, what was the most natural thing for man to do? Sin. The most natural thing in the garden, let's please God. That was Adam. Sin entered the world. And the most natural thing for man to do outside of the fall was now sin. That's why God looks at the world in Genesis 6, looks at the world in Noah. And what does he say? They only sin continually. That's all they do. That's all. The the whole world is broken. Every man is depraved. Every man is, is in sin. Every man is walking in unrighteousness, doing only evil continually. And then what did God do? He judged the world with a flood. Right? Only eight people survived, Noah and his family, and God kind of restarted his creation, restarted this covenant, and that's why God wrote his law again. And what did he do with his law? He wrote it on tablets of stone. Now we come to Exodus chapter 20. 
Acts chapter 20, we got Moses meets with God, and Moses receives the law, and he has it on tablets, right? You got the Ten Commandments, you all have that image, that visual of those two tablets of stone, and that's how God wrote his law. But the law was negative. It was warnings, judgments, do this or else, right? Believe in me, obey me, or I'm going to punish you, right? This was, I'm going to discipline you. This was the warning and the threats and the judgment that came through the law because the law had no ability to save man and the law had no ability to change man. It was just an awareness. It was grace of God to say, hey, you're broken. You need a fixer. You need a savior. And that's who I am. That's who God is. And so the law was insufficient. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor's office and say, hey, you've got terminal cancer, but they can't do anything to save you. That's what the law does. It just shows you that you're messed up, that you're broken, and that you need help. But the law has no ability to save you. Why? Because you can't perform it. You can't achieve it. You can't behave it. You can't do it. And so it was a diagnosis, but it was not a cure. You see, the law was just given to show us how desperate that we needed another covenant. And then the perfect covenant comes, and who's that? Christ. Are y'all tracking with me? That's a lot. We're getting some deep stuff here. But we're going to follow and see that the perfect covenant comes and the perfect law comes and it was replaced with Jesus Christ. He comes not to abolish the law, but he comes to fulfill the law. He comes to fulfill the law. He is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't come with more commands, right? Jesus was not born in a manger with two more tablets, He was born in a manger with grace and truth and love, and he came to forgive sins. So he comes in perfect obedience to teach us about the law of God. In fact, he elevates the law. What do you mean by that? How does he elevate the law of God? How how does he emphasize? How does he raise the standards of God's law? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, he comes and he preaches, and what does he do over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said this, but I say this. Right? You've heard it said this, but I say this. Because those legalists at that time, they were thinking, hey, if we don't murder, we're good. I've not killed anybody today. Praise God, I'm righteous. Hey, I didn't have an affair with my wife today. Oh, man, would you believe how righteous I am? That is how they viewed the laws, that if we just don't break it, then we're good. But they weren't getting to the heart of the law. And Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. In other words, hey, you've heard do not murder, but I say this. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Hey, hey, you've not committed adultery. The law says that. Don't do that. Don't have an adulterous affair in your wife. But I say this, if you looked upon a woman with lust and you've had those desires, you've already done it. You are already guilty. And so they were thinking in their own self-righteousness that they were aware of the law, but they were not applying the law because they thought that they were good with God. They didn't take the law far enough. They stopped short. They made an external thing instead of an internal thing. And Jesus says, it's not enough to be righteous on the outside if you're not righteous on the inside. You're a whitewashed tomb is what he calls them. All right, you're just covering up your own guilt. And you're thinking, you look pretty. And you can put a flower, all right, you can staple a flower to, to a tree, but that doesn't mean it's growing. doesn't mean it's alive. And so we understand here that they were never actually keeping the law. And so here we go. That's a big problem for all of us, right? It's a big problem. That's what Hebrews is lining up about who Christ is. All of that is impossible for us. What do you mean? Well, we can't live like Adam because we're all corrupted. We can't, you know, carry out the law of Moses because it's impossible. And we can't live like Jesus because he's perfect and we're not. So, so what, what can we do? If I can't be like Adam, perfect in the garden before the fall, if I can't live up to the standards of the law in Exodus, the, the commandments given to the people, I can't be perfect. And if I certainly can't be like Jesus, 
If I can't live up to his perfection of even taking it from external to internal, what in the world can I do? What hope do I have? So we can't do any of those things, but we can come to the cross. We can come to the cross. You see, the new covenant, it says here, has two elements. It says that we will have the forgiveness of sins and that the law of God will now be written on our hearts. Now, we're not about behavior. It's about internal transformation. It's not about me performing and, and, and pleasing. It's about me being changed from the inside. I'm a new creation, is what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. And so we see this, this new covenant that, that we have in the blood of Christ, this new covenant that we have through our priest in Christ. It, again, has the forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law of God on our hearts. As Jesus goes to the cross, as he dies in our place, as he pays the penalty, God forgives us, God regenerates us, God writes his law on our heart through transformation, and now what do we have? A new mind, a new heart, and a new love for the things of God. We have a new love for the things of God. Our sins are forgiven, and our sins are forgotten because our sins are paid in full. Look again, verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. It's powerful that God would choose to forget. That God would look over our sins because it's been covered in the blood. This is a powerful uh, image of what we see on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, if you remember in the Old Testament, was that day that they would come and make that sacrifice. The high priest, uh, and during his tenure, he would come and he would go one day a year, one man a year, to the presence of God. Right? And he would make a sacrifice for the sins of people. And he would sacrifice two animals that we see on the Day of Atonement, two goats. And he would sacrifice these sacrifices to do two different things. We see one goat was slaughtered for our sin. One goat was slaughtered showing that our sin was paid for and that the, the, the wrath of God had been justified. The sin debt was settled. But the other goat was a goat he sent into the wilderness. And what he would do is lay hands on that goat, and he would send that goat out into the wilderness with the sins of people because not only does God pay for our sins, we see in the Old Testament God was demonstrating he removes their sins. And that goat would go off, and he would fall off into a ditch and die there. And the first goat showed us that our sins are forgiven, and the second goat shows us that our sins are forgotten. So praise God that I can have my sin, my guilt, my secret shame, all my past, all my brokenness. I can have my sin forgiven, and praise God, I can have my sin forgotten. He would look over me. He would look past me. And isn't that the hardest thing about our culture? Oh, I can forgive, but I can't forget. I can forgive you, but I can't forget what you did to me. I can't forget what that did. I can't forget what happened. I will never forget. I will forgive you, but I will not forget. And God says, I can do both. Watch this. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to forget all about it. I'm going to look at you, and I'm not going to remember. Man, John, you did that one time. I remember that, and you were, man, I don't know if you, not, it's unqualified. No, he forgets. I will remember their sins no more. How about you? Are you standing in the freedom that is in Christ? There's so much freedom in Jesus. Because we can be guilt-ridden, thinking there's no way God could ever love someone like me. Oh man, I've blown it too far. There's no way that I could ever come to Christ. I can't be perfect, and praise God, you can't. And your awareness and your acknowledgement of that is the very first step, is that I need a Savior. And he invites you. For you to come, he brings you into his family, and then you will be left never the same again in Jesus' name. But you have to come.
You have to come. And our last thing that we take away here, there's this big picture that I want you to see, is that enjoyment is the evidence. I'm going to close in that last blank. Enjoyment is the evidence. Once you have this new covenant, this new heart, right, this new law written on your heart of Christ, then what you see again is that, that you have been submitted and surrendered to Christ. And now, man, it, it, one evidence that, that you are following Jesus, that you enjoy following Jesus. One evidence that you've been transformed is that the law of God has been written on your heart. And the most natural thing for you to do is now to live for the things of God. If you are here and you're proclaiming to be a Christian and you absolutely hate obedience and you hate going to church and you hate obeying the word of God, then I would say that's a mark that you've not been reborn. Because when you are reborn and the law of God is where written on your heart, then I'm going to be like Adam. I'm going to be like Christ. I want to live for the will of my father. That's the evidence is enjoyment. John Piper has a famous phrase that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's most glorified when I am most satisfied in what he's done for me. I have a joy in Jesus. I'm living for the things of God. I don't want my past because I know how broken it is. I want my promise. I want my hope. I want grace. I want freedom in Jesus. So I'm living for his word. I'm living for his will. And I'm living for his ways. I'm following Christ. Would you come today? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, would you come today recognizing who Jesus is and what he's done for you? We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.